about ego? What does it represent? The prophetic language as we read the scriptures. So, uh, let's start from Mighty 20, 24. For instance, uh, in the usage in Mighty 24, let's first read that, then we'll go and look at the application of the Old Testament from where we can be able to see how this world is used. Amen. Somebody 24, verse 28. It says, For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Amen. Yesterday, uh, somebody was asking the question and said, Pastor, why is it that God likes speaking to us in symbols? Everything looks in parable. And that is true. Uh, so, we know what carcass are, and we know what egos are. Now, ordinarily, when you look at that, you can almost want to conclude what the meaning really is. All right? Uh, eagles, or other translation, we use the word vulture. Right? But basically, it should be ego, and I'm going to explain why. Now, you know, when there is a dead corpse, the vultures, yeah, that is why they want to translate it vulture. You see? Vultures comes to a place where there is a dead corpse. All right? Okay. But we're going to find out precisely how this word is used and why Jesus have to use the word ego and not necessarily vulture. Amen? When you want to, when you look at the scriptures and you come across the word ego, it's actually describing a swift judgment and the consequences through earthly armies. Swift judgment and the consequence through earthly armies or soldiers, evading soldiers. So the key thing is swift judgment. And I'm going to explain why. The ego stands for a swift judgment against a nation. Let's start reading from Jeremiah 48. Jeremiah 48, and uh, I want to take it from verse 38 down to 40. Jeremiah 48, 38 to 40. Praise the Lord. The Bible says, There shall be a lamentation generally upon all the housetops of Moab and in the streets thereof. For I have broken Moab like a vessel wherein is no pleasure, saith the Lord. They shall howl, that is cry, saying, How is it broken down? How had Moab turned the back with shame? So shall Moab be a derision and a dismay to all them about him. For thus saith the Lord, Behold, he shall fly as an eagle, and shall spread his wings over Moab. Who shall fly as an eagle? Amen. Then, verse 41. Kariot is taken, and the strongholds are surprised, and the mighty man's heart in Moab at that day shall be as the heart of a woman in her pangs. Praise the living God. Now the key point I want you to know is verse number 40. 
For thus saith the Lord, Behold, he shall fly as an eagle and shall spread his wings upon Moab. Okay, just quickly move on to chapter 49 of the same Jeremiah. And let's look at verse 20. Chapter 49, verse 20. Scripture said, Therefore hear the counsel of the Lord that he has taken against Edom and his purposes that he has proposed against the inhabitants of Teman. Surely the least of the flock shall throw them out. Surely he shall make their habitation desolate with them. The earth is moved at the noise of their fall. As they cry, the noise thereof was heard in the Red Sea. Behold, he shall come up and fly as the eagle and spread his wings over Bozra. And as that day shall the heart of the mighty men of Edom be as the heart of a woman in a pangs. Amen. Hallelujah. So here we find that these two words, or these two scriptures we just read, these passages, is describing the invasion of Moab and Edom. Hallelujah. When it says, shall spread this wing as eagles over Moab and Edom, it's not talking about a literal physical eagle as a bird flying over a particular nation. But it's simply describing the invasion of the Babylonian armies. And we're going to come up against these two nations. Amen. God was going to raise these Babylonian soldiers to come punish Moab and Edom. And various other nations, if you take time to read from Isaiah, read again the book of Jeremiah. There are other nations that God uses the same language to describe how he was going to invade them. So when you talk about eagle, you're not talking about the literal eagle flying up in the sky. Now, there's a need for you to understand from this perspective so that when you get down to Matthew, you will know exactly what Jesus is talking about. Are you still there? Hallelujah. So the language of eagle here speaks of the swift judgment of the consequences of these people through the battle actions and exactly the way an eagle literally moves swiftly to destroy its prey. You know, when an eagle sees um, whatever creature it wants to destroy. You know the way it dies? Very swift. Okay, that's what it means. So the swift invasion of Babylon on Edom and Moab is what God is now describing as that of what? An eagle. Hallelujah. So there's a need for you to understand so that when, when you read in the scriptures, there are other places where the eagle represents uh, as it were, God's own glory. Just like you find in the book of um, Exodus 19, when he said, I brought you as eagle on my wings, or as eagle's wing. Is that all right? That's describing God. But that is not in that case talking about judgment. But when you begin to read other scriptures, because remember, we're dealing with how to understand what Jesus said in Matthew 24. Is that, on this, is that clear? Good. So that's the point here. Anyway, take another scripture along this line. Book of Hosea chapter number 8. Hosea chapter number 8. 
and verse 1. He says, Sell the trumpet to the mouth. He shall come as an eagle against the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and transgressed against my law. Amen? Is it there? Just note it. He shall come as an eagle against. So that's it. Did you understand? The house of the Lord. I want you to understand that. That's very important. So the eagle here, coming against the house of the Lord, is the Assyrian army. That was coming against the northern kingdom of Israel. I know you need to understand, and I'm sure you already do know that, when you read about Judah and Israel, you should understand God is talking about the two nations in terms of after the division at the time of Rehoboam. You know, when the nation split into two, Rehoboam had the southern kingdom, as the case may be, and then we have the northern kingdom. Is that okay? All right. So here we have Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And for you to understand a little bit of that, if you read the book of John chapter 4, 16 down, 17, 18, you hear when Jesus was speaking to the woman on the well. All right? And, uh, and he said, if you know who he is that is talking to you, you will give him water to drink because he will give you water out of life that you will never come back here again to fetch. Remember that. And uh, thereafter, he said, give me something to drink. And he said, go get me your husband. And the woman said, I have no husband. And Jesus said, of a truth, you've got no husband. Because even the one you stay with now is not your husband. But you see, Jesus wasn't talking literally about husband and wife in the streets. Is that okay? All right. If you go to Second Kings chapter 17, you'll be able to see the five husbands that Jesus was talking about. They have to do with the gods of the five nations that uh, the, the king, I think, of Babylon brought. I mean, after the invasion... I think the Assyrians, the Assyrians captured the place, so they brought five nations, Babylon, Avas, Avavim, whatever, to occupy the land. And because they were in that place in Samaria, they didn't know how to worship Jehovah. The Bible now made us to understand that God sent lions to begin to attack the people. So they cried back to the Assyrians and to say, well, we are here, but because we don't understand what is going on, the lions are coming to attack us. And, and the Bible made us to understand that they said, you send one of the people that you took away to go back there and teach them the way of Jehovah. Is that okay? So, a priest was sent back to Samaria, where these five nations were now occupying, to begin to teach them the worship of God. But the point is, even in the midst of that, every one of those nations had their gods that they were still serving. So, now, Jesus was speaking to this woman. Remember, he said, he came to the lost house to seek for the lost sheep of Israel. The lost sheep of Israel was the other kingdom that was not, that is Samaria in particular. And that, that was the ten tribes out of the twelve. Twelve belonged to uh, Jerusalem and Judah. Then ten belonged to Samaria as a capital. And these people were the people you call Samaritans. The Samaritans were actually Israelites who have now moved after Jeroboam said his 
finger, little finger will be greater than his father's tie. So they were in the true sense supposed to be Jewish people. But they see themselves not to be Jews because they are not from Judah. So you hear the woman speaking to Jesus and saying, We know salvation is of the Jews. Is that alright? Good. And now, so remember, when the disciples came, they were saying, they, they wondered, how could you be talking to a Samaritan? Now the point is because it's understood that every one of them who were taken away or perhaps left back in Samaria, they have mixed up their faith with those gods, so they were not pure. So the Jews who feel they are very pure, are salvationists of the Jews, and um, true worship is in Jerusalem. Is that okay? Good. There was, there was no way for Jesus who came from Jew, or as a Jew, because Jesus was from Judah. The people you call Jews are those who come from the tribe of Judah. Are you following this? So when he says salvation is of the Jews, he's saying, yes, I know you are from Judah. And that's why the scripture talks about Jesus being a lion of the tribe of Judah. Okay, so the Jewish people, or those you refer to as Jewish people, are those from the tribe of Judah. So understand that two tribes followed up uh, Rehoboam, which is Judah, and I think the Levite or whatever, I don't know. Two tribes went with him, and the remaining ten tribes went with uh, Jeroboam. Now Jeroboam mixed up his people, and everyone else, they got corrupted in worshiping other gods. So the Jewish people don't like them. Okay? But Jesus came for the lost house of Israel, which has to do with what? The Jewish people, which is now the northern kingdom of Israel. Is that, is that, are you getting the point? Good. So this is the issue. Now you got the point that Jesus gave a parable on the way of a man that was going up to Jericho. Jericho was supposed to be the high level, moving from a low level to a high level. And this man fell among robbers. Remember that. And the Bible said the priest came, the Levite came. They did nothing. And the Samaritan came. You know this story? Now Jesus was trying to illustrate that the Jewish people, now the Levite and the, the, the priest, they belong to Jerusalem, to the Jewish people. But here he's saying, religion as it will have blinded you that you cannot do the simplest thing of taking care of somebody who is injured because the Levite passed by the priest passed by and the Samaritan came and took care of the man so the question is who is his neighbor Jesus was trying to say in the true sense the Samaritan had more virtue than the Jewish people are you getting that? good so understand that so when you talk about good Samaritan understand that we are talking about Israel after the division. So, now for instance, one more time, one more thing. The, the Samaritans were worshipping on the mountain, Mount Gorazin, which you find in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 29. And that's why the woman was saying, our fathers worship on this mountain. Is that alright? And Jesus was not saying, the time is coming, or the hour is coming, and now is, where they shall neither worship in this mountain, neither in Jerusalem. So what he was trying to say is, all of your religious activity here is going to come to a stop. And even the one that is going on in Jerusalem is going to come to a stop. Because one of the things that made Jeroboam to go to the way he went was, he wanted to make sure people don't go to Jerusalem to worship. So, uh, but we do know actually that this well, um, 
Abraham drank of the well, Isaac and Jacob and all of that. Then this mountain was a place where also they kind of had worship there. So, Jesus was actually trying to say, even what the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom claimed to be pure worship, which has to do with Judaism, is that okay? After now, and the hour is now, and now is, what he was trying to say is, I am the example of such true worshippers right now. I don't worship in this mountain, and I don't worship in Jerusalem. So when he was saying, the hour is coming, and now is. In other words, I am typical of the type of worship that God is looking for. I don't worship in this mountain, neither do I worship in Jerusalem. Is that okay? Reason is because he is the firstborn among many brethren. Everything that you have to go through or experience, he first must have to experience it. So true worship was first demonstrated by him, then you have to follow suit. That is why the Bible says, Neither shall they say, Lo, there or here, for the kingdom of God is within you. Praise the Lord. Worship is to worship God where God reigns and rules and reigns within your spirit. So the true worship comes from the spirit life. So what we're looking at here, what I'm trying to explain in Hosea chapter 8, is talking about the house of the Lord, which has to do with Israel. So here we find that there was an invasion that was coming to the northern kingdom, which has to do with Samaria, and God using this ego army, which is the Assyrians, to destroy them. Hosea chapter 8. Is that all right? So the ego here is the Assyrian army coming with swift judgment against the northern kingdom of Israel. Praise the Lord. Is it clear? Okay. Let's get down to Hebrews. I mean uh, Habakkuk chapter 1 verse number 8. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse number 8. I really want you to understand these things so that when you're reading the scriptures, you should be able to know exactly what you're reading, what you believe in, and then you don't get confused. Because sometimes you see some of these simple scriptures that we're considering are the things that may use to teach you things that actually are not biblical. They form doctrines out of them. Okay. So get down to Habakkuk chapter 1 verse number 8. Look at what it says. The horses also are swift than the leopard, and are more fierce than evening wolves. They shall fly as the eagle that hasteneth to eat. Hallelujah. So when he said these are the horsemen or armies, they describe it here. They are actually the Babylonians. Go back to history, that's what you're going to find. Amen? So it's the Babylonian army that is here described by the prophet here as the flying eagles. So when we consider Jeremiah, when we consider Hosea, and then we consider Habakkuk, conclusively you can see that when we're talking about the eagle, we're talking about an army that God is using to evade another nation, to destroy them, and basically because they've forsaken his ways. Praise the Lord. Are we together? Good. So when we read eagles, we're not talking about some birds flying up in the sky. God is always using the natural thing to describe spiritual things. First natural, then spiritual. Amen? Hey, are we together? Good. It's just like somebody was asking me a question today. Sent an SMS. A waiting town in Benin on the axe. Uh, can I get this scripture clear from you? In Genesis 1, 26, the Bible talks about, let's make my image and likeness. And then the question was, 
Was that a spiritual man or a natural man? And was that the man that fell? And the answer is simple. That was not the man that fell. Genesis 1 and 2 was the real man. I mean, 26 was the real man. But Genesis 2, 7 was the fallen man. Is that okay? The real man was made to come to the place where he can have the propensity to fall. So, scripture will say first spiritual, then natural. As the case may be. Or first natural, then spiritual. When it comes to Adam, they were moving back to spiritual being. But when God started creation, Genesis 1 and 2, in a true sense, particularly Genesis 1, is all spiritual. Genesis 2 will begin to bring in the element of the natural thing into being. And Genesis 3 is the fall. But in the true sense, you can't find what you find in Genesis 3 in Genesis 1 and 2. Amen? The Genesis 1 man cannot fall, can never sin. That's the real man. And that is where God is bringing each and every one of us back into. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Alright, so ego speaks of judgment. Swift one too, fast one too. In other words, when God talks about moving to a nation as an ego, you just expect a swift uh, judgment wherein those consigned cannot even defend themselves. Hallelujah. Because you see, the ego, when it passes on the prayer, the prayer have no option. The prayer can't defend itself. You know, the ego can come dive up, dive into a river, pick up fish, whatever. Pick up other things like that. It can just go straight, you know, with such a force, grab, and then it goes off. Praise the living God. So if God is invading the nation as an ego, automatically, there is no escape. That's just what it means. Hallelujah. Okay, Matthew 24 now. So that you can understand the language of Jesus. So that you can understand the language of Jesus. Matthew 24. Hallelujah. Uh, let's look at verse 15. Are we there? Scripture says, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee unto the mountains. Remember what Judea means? You know what Judea means? Amen? Okay. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. By implication, escape through. Now let me explain something about housetop. Some of you read housetop, you don't seem to understand. How many of you, some of you have been to the north? Far up north, most times they build their homes with flat base like this. Alright? See, what you are scared of is not what scares them. They use more, they get flat surface. You can find that. I remember in just climbing on top of one of them. Flat surface, that's the way it is. Now, Palestine, you have the same kind of structures. Right? You could go up there to relax. And that is part of where David went to and he saw Uriah's wife. Sorry, hostel. Is that okay? It's a place of visibility. It's a place for air. I mean, for refreshing or whatever. And now Jesus is saying, if you are the housetop, don't come down. In other words, if you are coming down, don't come right inside again. Just escape. 
Are you still there with me? Escape because the trouble is coming. When you see, escape. That is what he's saying. Hallelujah. Verse 18. Not letting which is in the field return back to take his clothes. Feed us to do is like saying if you're out in your farms, you're rearing sheep, whatever the case may be, once you see this sign, don't come back into Jerusalem. And I've already been saying this, for those of us ministers who uses this to teach the rapture, if you really want to be consistent with scriptural understanding, the theory or doctrine will fall flat on your face. Because here, Jesus is not talking to somebody in Africa. Are you sitting there with me? He's not talking to anybody in Africa. He's not talking to somebody in the U.S. He's talking to people, and he mentioned in Judea. If you're in the field, what field? Praise the Lord. I remember the other day somebody was speaking, and he said, Do you know why? Somebody was telling me, one of the ministers preaching, do you know why two people or two pilots have to fly a plane trying to prove the rapture? He said, the reason because in case the rapture comes, one of them goes, the other one will land the plane. (laughs) That means only the pilot could be qualified to go. The other one is not qualified, will land the plane safely. Then of course, if that is the truth, we should have had two drivers in a car. So that if one goes, the other one will still drive the passenger to safety. You see how many things? Hallelujah. They want to use everything to prove a theory that doesn't work. So here in verse 18, say, neither let him quit his feet, return back to take his clothes. Don't get back into the house, run for your life. That's what he's saying. Verse 19. I want to them that I will chide unto them that give suck in those days. I've explained it severally. Is that okay? All right. Verse 20. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. Sabbath day, you are not expected to do anything as a Jewish man. You don't do anything. You don't, you don't kindle fire. You don't do anything. Remember, it's one of the laws. So to walk on the Sabbath day or to begin to think of escaping is, is, is like you are breaking the law of the Sabbath. Are you still there? Okay, that's what he's telling them here. And then, like I explained before, verse 19, I say, Woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days because in times of war, it's more difficult for you with children to escape than a man that had none. And so if a woman is pregnant, then it's going to be more difficult. And if it's sucking a little child, then it's going to be more difficult. Jesus is trying to describe how terrible the time would be for the Israelite. Praise the living God. It's not describing anything that happens to you or the way that happened to you. I remember some years back, somebody asked me the question and I said, okay, fine. If you think this is a rapture, it simply means that a pregnant woman is not qualified to go through the rapture and somebody who just deliver in the hospital cannot be raptured. But that's not what Jesus meant because he wasn't talking to anybody. To us in terms of what the rapture will look like. 
Otherwise, we should just start telling all our hospitals, if we are sincere, all our Christian sisters should not, if they are preparing for the rapture, get pregnant anymore. That's what Jesus is saying. So if you really have the mind for the rapture, then stop making babies. And unfortunately too, men doesn't seem to have any problem here. <laughs> Hallelujah. It's just the women, the pregnant ones, the ones that are sucking babies. So the men have all the freedom to go about the women. Oh my God. So now, you men, stop making it impossible for your wife to get into the rapture. Praise the living God. Amen. On a serious note, Jesus wasn't talking to you and I. He was talking to the people in Palestine and said, when you see what Daniel spoke about, the desolation, just know that the hour is nigh. Hallelujah. I'm going to explain that one more time. So, verse 21. For there shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world, to this time, no, nor ever shall be. Great tribulation has nothing to do with an antichrist coming. Jesus wasn't talking about when Antichrist is going to come from 2,000 years ahead of time. Everything he said got fulfilled within a period of 40 years. Is that okay? The great tribulation was such that Israel was locked up. The whole of Jerusalem was compassed about. And you can't go in. You can't come out. You can't go to the farm. No food. No water. It was a terrible time. Like I explained to you, women were eating their babies. Amen? Hallelujah. Now verse 22. And he said, except those days be shut in, they shall not be fled, be saved. But for the elect say, those days shall be shut in. And also again, we used to use this to interpret the end of time. Absolutely nothing to do with that. The shortening of that thing has to do with the many days that God was going to invade, I mean the Roman armies were going to invade Jerusalem. But he said, for the sake of those. Now, remember, I gave you the story some time ago. When Titus came in and invaded the city, after a while, there was an information at home. I think the man died or so. And then they pulled stakes and they went back home. And within that period, all those that Jesus, or could believe what Jesus said, begin to leave the city. By the time the elect have left the city, the elect being those who believe the Lord, the Roman armies came back. Amen. So all those who believe what Jesus said, they were all what? Saved. None of them died within the period. That in question. Okay, verse 21. Then if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or dear, believe it not. <laughs> Hallelujah. I don't want to stress on this, but the point is, Jesus is still emphasizing the fact that you don't have to go to a location to look for Jesus. Amen? It's quite unfortunate that most of them will travel, go on pilgrimages to Jerusalem, that the Muslims go to Mecca. I don't know where the Buddhists go to. But they are all religious exercise. They have nothing to do with looking for a Savior. Hallelujah. Absolutely nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with your salvation one bit. Jesus is not in a location. Jesus is within you. Hallelujah. You need to understand that. Okay? You know, he explained that in Luke chapter 21, the kingdom of God is within you. Amen? 
He shall not receive Lou here, though Lou there, for the kingdom of God is within thee. Okay, verse 24. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they should deceive even the very elect. We've not published that book, but the book which we call The Sign of Christ's Coming explained that. I tried to give up to about four different false prophets that arose at a particular time in that book. We're going to publish that. Somebody just edited it in the U.S. He got crazy after reading it. One elderly man who had been in faith for many years. We're going to go through that. Amen? So here is this man. I mean, here is what Jesus is talking about. That the signs were going to be so tough, so terrible. But then, do not move. In other words, don't be deceived into thinking that you can locate Christ somewhere else. No matter how many miracles that are happening anywhere, one thing is certain. Jesus is within you. Hallelujah. It's within you. Okay. Verse 25. Behold, I've told you before. Wherefore, if they say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. For as the lightning coming out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. And I tried to explain in that book, one thing is, you need to understand the Jewish people believe this. When they go to bury someone, they lay his head towards the west, the legs towards the east. Because in the temple, there is the eastern gate. The eastern gate is reserved only for the priest, which is used, I mean, once, maybe in a year. The understanding is the Lord comes from the eastern gate. Right? Just like the sun rises from the east, as says in the west. So when they bury somebody with the head to the west, it's a conviction of resurrection. When it's rising, it will face God. Have you noticed when you go to the cemetery, they try to tell you where to put the legs and put the head? Uh, okay. It's all part of it. <laughs> they didn't even know why they do what they did. Or what they are doing. So that's what Jesus is saying here. The move of God is like from the east to the west. And if you check, geographically speaking, the rise of Christianity is from the east to the west. Came out of Jerusalem, whatever you call Middle East. Begin to move down to the west. And from there, move to the rest of the nations. From the east to the west. That's the move of God's light. Which has to do with the gospel. Hallelujah. Now verse 28 is the key. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be ward, gathered together. So, can somebody throw light on this now? Going by what we read in the book of Hosea, the book of Habakkuk, and the book of Jeremiah. Is that okay? Where the carcass is, there shall the eagles also do what? Gathered. What do you think Jesus is talking about? So here we find that the carcass is here. I'm going to explain the carcass just a little bit. But the eagles gathering has to do with the Roman soldiers coming to invade Jerusalem. Just like the Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom in the book of Hosea, like we read before. Just like the Babylonians invaded Moab and Edom in the book of Jeremiah. Even so, the Roman soldiers came invading Jerusalem in AD 70. And that is what you find here in verse number 28 of Matthew 24. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And one thing is very significant. 
Even the Roman soldiers, their banner has the eagle as a symbol. They have the eagle as a symbol. I don't know if that's coincidental in any manner. But to me, it's very significant. They had the eagle and the banner. Even as they move as a nation. Then. So within that particular generation, Jesus was prophesying that these eagles will come to bring sweet judgment to the Jewish nation, which is pictured as dead carcasses, spiritually speaking. They were dead to God. And that's going to take me to a little bit of that interpretation. But let's move down to, because of time, let's move down to Revelation 4. Revelation 4. Let me speak something very briefly as well on this. Hallelujah. Is somebody understanding me? Revelation 4, let's look at verse number 4. The Bible says, around about the throne, we have four and twenty elders. And upon the seat, I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment. And they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceed lightnings and thundings of voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. You know, the seven spirits of God you find in the book of Isaiah chapter 11. Is that all right? Seven spirit of God is the fullness of God's wisdom, the perfection of wisdom. But you find all of that in Isaiah 11, then verse 1 to 2 or so. You read that. Then the Bible says, verse 6, And before the throne there was a sea of glass like a crystal, and in the midst of the throne, and round about the throne, were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. I tried to explain this the other time. When the Bible talks about the sea of glass, it's talking about the calmness of the people. It's not the wave of the sea. It's not men foaming out their own shames. These are men that have been redeemed. These are people that are calm. They have the peace of God. They are walking in the light of God. The 24 elders represent the 12 tribe, which is actually priestly. It's a priestly order, not literal 24. Hallelujah. Uh, remember, those of us who often come to this meeting, I try to explain to us that 144,000 have nothing to do with numerical numbers. How many of you understand that? 144 is simply a multiple of 12. God walks in thousands. Amen. Hallelujah. And so the Bible we speak in the book of Psalm and said, the cattle and a thousand hills belongs to God. And the Bible talks about those who are following the Lord. The Bible says there are thousands and thousands. Myriads. In the Greek, the word is myriads. Like we read the book of Job, also read in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 32. Those who came with the Lord to Mount Sinai were thousands and thousands of his saints. Speaking about people. So here we see when you talk about a sea that is of crystal clear, we are talking about the people that have been redeemed unto God, do not have the natural, you know, upheavals and confusions in their life anymore. And so the throne was surrounded about with 24 elders. And here we have the four beasts. 
The four beasts in the true sense, if you read other translations, will tell you we're talking about the four living creatures. Is that okay? And the Bible talks about verse 7, the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf, and the third beast had the face of a man, and the fourth beast was like what? A flying eagle. Now all of these beasts we're looking at here are the attributes of God in Christ. Hallelujah. So you go back to your four gospel, beginning to read from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you begin to see the principles outlined out. In the scriptures. Jesus manifested the full face of this beast we're talking about. The face of a man. The born as a human being. The lion of the tribe of Judah. The conquering spirit. The eagle. Speaking of the power of flight, vision and sight. And then talking about the horse. The body bearer. Bearing the sins of the people if you will. And of course the truth again is. Every one of you must get to the place of being redeemed. Through this process, you have to be able to pass through and manifest these four beasts. In the true sense, all that scripture will tell you, the four living creatures, not beasts. When you read beasts, you'll be looking at animals. It's not. We are talking of living creatures who receive the fullness of the wisdom of God. The seven, I mean seven spirits of God manifesting in their life. The Bible tells us, Behind and in front, they have the spirit. In other words, they have perfect vision. That is where God is bringing us into. Hallelujah. So, but here I say the flying eagle was like, I mean, the last, the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. So, this fourth beast, or more literally speaking, living creatures, were symbolic of the different attributes of God, like I said before. The fourth attribute pictures him as the eagle, brings him judgment and Retribution to Judea through the military action of human armies. It's still God moving, like I said before in the book of Hosea. I will come as a wing. You understand that? Eagle's wind over Moab, over Edom, and on and on. It's God moving as judgment to the people of Judea because of who they have finally become. In terms of forsaking the laws of God. Praise the Lord. Amen. It's not talking about one literal beast that are going to be flying in the sky. You know, it's very unfortunate the way people interpret the book of Revelation. Very, very unfortunate. Because there are so many things they cannot put together. They would rather end up threatening you. With the things that they cannot interpret. But the truth again is, the book of Revelation... So those of the most beautiful books we ought to be reading. You know why? The Bible says, blessed is he who read it and do what? And understand. So it's a book that blesses people because it's a prophecy about Jesus. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And look at what it starts with. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him to show unto John his servants. It was a revelation of Jesus. Not the revelation of an antichrist. Not the revelation of uh, Idi Amin or Saddam Hussein or Hitler or socialism in Russia. No, a revelation. When you talk about revelation, means the unveiling of Jesus Christ. So what's expected is, when you read the book of Revelation, you ought to be finding Jesus. Not Idi Amin. Not an antichrist. No, 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 no. 
You should be seeing Jesus when you read the book of Revelation. Because the revelation of Jesus Christ, the unveiling, is like another word you see, the Bible talks about creation waiting for the manifestation. That word manifestation is the same thing as revelation. It means something that is existing but covered. A typical example is an artist who sculpt a figure, an image, right? But you see, in the process of sculpting, though people may be seen, but what happens is at the end it is covered with tarpaulin or whatever. Awaiting the day when that image or that sculpture will be finally revealed ceremonially. How many of you have observed that? Okay. The finisher the sculptor, they wrap it up with cellophane, wrap it up with whatever waterproof. And then on this particular day, which is the day of finally unveiling the sculpture, everybody will gather and see the wonder of what the artists have done. That is the unveiling. But you see, it's already there. Record had it on Michelangelo, one of the wonderful artists in those days, sculpted, I think, David or something. And uh, he spent many years in doing that. By the time it was finally unveiled, people asked him, how did you see this? He said, David has already been existing in this, in this tone before I started chiseling it out. You see, in other words, he saw an existing being, even when the bull, rock or so was there standing, he was seeing a human being inside. But what he did was to cover out the things that were not part of the person and the real person showed up in that sculptural piece. Are you there with me? So what is really happening is God is striping us of the things that are not of his sonship so that the true sonship in us will be, we know what? Will be revealed. So it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. I have nothing to do with an antichrist, nothing to do with what's going to happen in the last days. No. Read the book with the mind of understanding that you need to find a Christ in every page that you are reading. Praise the Lord. Okay. So, might you say something there? Well, the, the carcasses are, there shall the eagles be guarded. I want to deal with that in the next 10 minutes, if we can, and then we're done. Carcasses. What does that mean? So, we have the eagles tonight, and we have the carcasses tonight. Amen. In simple prophetic interpretation of the word carcass, it means a nation that is spiritually dead and militarily defeated. In prophetic language. Carcass means a nation that is spiritually dead towards, towards God and militarily defeated. No strength, no power. I'm going to give you a few scriptures on that. Isaiah 5. Isaiah 5, let's look at verse 24 and then 25 up to 28. That would do. Okay. Isaiah 5, are you there with me? Carcasses. Therefore, as the fire devoureth the stubble and the flame consumeth the child, so their root shall be as rottenness, and their blossom shall go up as dust, because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts, despise the word of the Holy One of Israel. There is the anger of the Lord kindled against his people, and he hath stretched forth his hand against them, and has smitten them, and he is the tremble, and their carcass were torn in the midst of the street. For all this is anger is not torn away, but his hand is stretched out still. And it will lift up as ensign to the nation from far, 
and we hiss unto them from the end of the earth, and behold, they shall come with speed swiftly. Are you sitting there with me? Okay. None shall be worried, nor stumble among them, none shall stumble nor sleep, neither shall the gather of the lungs be loose, nor the latchet of their shields be broken, whose arrows are sharp and their bows bend. The horses' hoofs shall be counted like flint, and their wheels like what? A wild wind. You know what he's saying? He's talking about the nation that is coming to the people that God has already described as what? Carcasses. Praise the living God. Are you, are you there with me? So carcasses speaks about the people who are already dead militarily. In other words, what God is saying here, when this invasion is coming, the people he's talking about do not have the resisting power to withstand what is going to come. They were dead. So to God, they are what? Carcasses. Amen? Praise the living God. But remember, these are God's own people. Picture their carcasses because of their sin. They have become spiritually dead to God because of their evil ways. And now his anger was arose. God will punish them by bringing the war like Assyrians against them. The Assyrians will come with speed swiftly, like we read in verse 26. Amen? And tear them apart figuratively, as we are seeing here, as carcass. Praise the living God. So a people that are dead to God are figuratively represented or referred to as what? Carcasses. They are carcass. No strength, no power. A nation that is described as a carcass nation is a nation that cannot resist an invasion. God is no longer there to protect them. He do not have the military mind to defend themselves. They are carcass. Amen? Hey, are you there? Okay, quickly. Let's look at something in relation to the king of Babylon. Isaiah 14. We've got five minutes more. Isaiah 14. Look at this. I've already said this before. If you truly want to understand the book of Isaiah chapter 14 in relation to the fall of Lucifer, you just need to know that God is talking about King Nebuchadnezzar. Is that okay? Are you there? Okay. Look at verse 18. Isaiah 14, 18. And all the kings of the nations, even all of them, lie in glory, everyone in his own house. But I are cast out of the grave like an abominable branch, and as a raiment of those that are slain. Trust true which I saw, that go down to the stones of the pit, as a carcass trodden under feet. Thou shalt not be joined with them in Borea. God is speaking to King Nebuchadnezzar. Because thou hast destroyed thy land and slain thy people, the seed of evildoers shall never be renowned. Reowned. Amen? Praise the Lord. Are you there? Now, for you to understand who God is talking to, go back to verse 4. Verse 4 of Isaiah 14. It tells us precisely who the prophet was speaking about. And that is the king of Babylon. Look at verse 4. Thou shalt, not take up, thou shalt take up this proverb against the king of, is it there? Good, king of Babylon. And say, how have the oppressor seized the golden city seized? So it was a prophecy against the king of Babylon. Now what God is saying here is this, 
after the king of Babylon had been used to do all of those mighty exploits in destroying so many nations, taking Israel into captivity, whatever the case may be, God was going to come around and say, your time has also come. Amen. Hallelujah. So here is the prophecy against Babylon and he said, the king of Babylon, his empire, which will be as carcass or dead body because his power and authority was dead and now he will be militarily defeated, trodden down on the feet by the Medo Persians. The Medo Persians destroyed the king of Babylon and the empire of Babylon. Praise the living God. Are you there with me? Let me tell you something tonight. You see, you read so much about Babylon or Nebuchadnezzar. And then uh, you read about Medopatia, you read about Assyria, you read about Greeks, whatever, as the case may be. One thing is this. There were other nations on the earth, even as at the time. But the point is, any nation that had interaction with Israel, either negatively or positively, the name comes up. Hallelujah. Okay, let's just take the New Testament example of carcass tonight and then we can shut down. Matthew 24, back again to where we come from. We read that before. Isn't it? Alright, just look at verse 28 now. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Hallelujah. So, who are the carcass here that God is talking about? The unbelieving and spiritually dead nation of Judaism which will be consumed by the Roman ego in their war action that will soon follow. That's what Jesus was talking about. Well, the carcasses be gathered, I mean, is there shall the egos be gathered together. So here, this was Israel, Judaism. They were not dead to God. They were no longer following. I tried to explain something to someone a few days ago was speaking to me on the same thing. I mentioned that, I think, two weeks ago now. One of the major reasons that Jesus had to cause the fig tree is because the fig tree represents the house of Israel. I've mentioned that several times. Amen? Now, it had leaves, but no fruits. Leaf is a symbol of religion. Is that okay? Remember, if you read the account very well, the Bible says it was not time for figs. So if it was not time for figs, why was Jesus looking for fruits? That will tell you what exactly happened. And I, like I tried to explain to you, the same thing that happened in the garden is what was going on in Israel. When Adam, Eve, Adam and Eve sinned, they went to look for figs to clothe themselves. What that really stands for is they were going into religion to get into God. Man is always looking for religion for a cover. No fruit, much leaves. And so when God said, when Jesus said, no man will eat of thee anymore. I mean, if you remember that. And uh, he came out the next day and the Bible said the fig tree withered. Disciples said, hey, come on, this tree withered even from the roots. What that means is no man after now, we ever partake of Judaism as a religion. That's all for those of us who think that we need to go to Israel to partake of certain activities, to look for, for Jesus. Maybe, I don't know, 
The unfortunate thing is, even the Jewish people till now do not believe that Jesus is a Messiah. But yeah, people want you to go there. Right now, there are a lot of money being contributed from the United States. They are building the third temple. I don't know how they are going to do that. Ministers are asking people to donate to build the temple and to start all that over again. But the truth again is Jesus said, no man will partake of thee. So there is not going to be any temple that will stand up wherein Judaism we practice anymore. No, 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 no. The cause of the victory is standing sure. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Jesus said, no man will partake of thee. No man. That's what we mean. It's all religion, but no fruit. They were all carcass. And the eagles, which are the Roman soldiers, came in and invaded them. They were dead to God spiritually and militarily. They couldn't defend themselves. Did we get anything tonight? God bless you. Thank you.